in your Bibles this morning, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. Romans 12, verses 15 and 16. We've been walking through this passage in Romans chapter 12 together over the last five or six weeks or so, and just been thinking about how these everyday exhortations of Paul that apply to us all the time as Christians, how they apply specifically uh, to our lives in the midst of recent events, in the midst of a time of crisis. And this morning, we're going to be looking at two verses that deal with our relationships, in particular, with our brothers and sisters in the family of God. Uh, Some of the things that Paul says in this passage have more to do with our relationship with the world. We saw that last week when uh, we saw that as Christians, we are to, uh, in grace, take in a in a uh, passive way the the persecution, the mistreatment of the world and in an active way to actually respond in kindness and love to our enemies. And so those exhortations have more to do with our relationship to the broader world. These two verses that we're looking at this morning seem to have more to do with our relationship with one another as the family of God within the body of Christ. And so Paul says to us as Christians, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have the privilege to read your word today. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to gather together as the family of God. Uh, There are still places in the country where The government has said that churches should not gather, and so many churches are not gathering today. Uh, We are thankful that we have this privilege to meet and to assemble today as the family of God. We ask, Father, that you would bless and encourage our brothers and sisters around the world who may be in times of distress, who may be in times of persecution, uh, and especially bless them during this time in which uh, there is an increase in unemployment, an increase in need, an increase in encouragement uh, or a need for encouragement. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless our brothers and sisters around the world, bless our missionaries today and help them in the different situations where they are. And Father, I pray that your word, these two verses that we're focusing our attention on today, that they would speak to us, that we would understand their meaning and that we would uh, not just allow them to uh, pass by in one ear and out the other, but that we would seek to do, to put into practice the things that we learn. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. The words that Paul is teaching us here are quite simple, but they're harder to put into practice. 
And there are many exhortations of Paul in this passage that are that way. And in verses 15 and 16, Paul, I believe, is encouraging us as the family of God to do three things. One of them is to have compassion for one another. And I've I've phrased it this way. The gospel produces compassion for the family of God. And what I want to make sure is that we understand that in all of these exhortations that Paul gives us in verses 9 through 21, is that the foundation of them all is the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And God has done that in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ by sending his perfect one and only son into the world to live as a righteous representative for us and then to go to the cross and to die as a sacrificial atoning sacrifice for us and then to rise again and triumphantly ascend to heaven in victory and then forevermore intercede for us as the children of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And then we receive that by faith. We believe it. We trust that God has done this work for us by grace and that we have nothing at all to contribute to it. And when that gospel comes into our lives, when the grace of God finds us and transforms us, it does a work in our hearts. It it changes us from the inside out. In his letter to Christians in 1 John, the Apostle John said that when we are born of God, when God's seed, he says, literally comes to dwell in us, that means then that we will live in such a way to bear forth the family likeness of God. God is our father. We are his children. If we are genuinely born again, as children of God, then we will live as children of God and we will seek to exemplify the kind of characteristics that our God has. And so the gospel produces compassion for the family of God. This is something that that we should strive for. There is an element in the Christian life of diligence, of pursuit, of seeking these qualities. Peter writes in 1 Peter or 2 Peter chapter 1, that God has given us everything that we need through his grace for godliness. And then he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, therefore with all diligence, add to your faith, virtue and knowledge and self-control and uh, loving kindness, brotherly love, all of these things he says do with diligence. But he grounds that in God has given us what we need for life and for godliness. And so the gospel produces these things in us. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and produces his fruit in us. But we also actively seek and pursue these things in the strength of the spirit. As Paul says in Colossians, I work mightily as God works in me, as his mighty power works in and through me. And so we work, but it's God's power, his grace that is working in and through us. So the gospel produces compassion for the family of God. And Paul words it this way in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. 
mourn with those who mourn. And what Paul is asking us to do here is he is asking us to to join together with our brothers and sisters in the Lord emotionally in what they are going through in their lives. One of the key words in verse 15 and in verse 16 is the idea of to think the same. To think the same. Paul uses that in verse 16 to encourage unity within the body of Christ. But that idea is also present here in verse 15 that we are to think the same in the sense of if our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through a time of rejoicing, then let us join with them in that rejoicing and share that joy and encourage them. If they're going through a time of hurting, of sorrow, then let us join with them in that sorrow and feel that sorrow. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his sermon on this verse, suggests that the first command is actually harder to do than the second command. And he makes the case that that when we, as a person, as a human being, see someone weeping, see someone mourning, uh, there's kind of a natural instinct there for our heart to go out to them. He says, yes, there are callous people. Yes, there are cold-hearted, stubborn people who just pass by and don't take any notice. But there is, there is a kind of a natural pull to, uh, when we see someone hurting, to try to comfort, try to console that person. But he says, oftentimes when we see someone re- rejoicing, someone enjoying a, a, a good time in their lives, maybe a, a, a good word, a, a promotion at work, a, an in, income of, of a, a blessing, he says, sometimes that's when our selfishness flares up. And instead of rejoicing with them, we actually get jealous. We actually get envious and we think, why didn't that happen to me? Why couldn't I get that promotion at work? Why, why couldn't I get that, that uh, blessing that this person got? And he says, at, it's at those times that we have to be very careful to not put our eyes on ourselves, but to continue to keep our eyes on others when others are going through times of encouragement and blessing. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And I was thinking about that during this particular time in which we're in, because over the last two or three months, there have been this, this coronavirus, this COVID-19 pandemic has affected people differently, hasn't it? It's affected people very differently. And so, you know, I can say this for myself, uh, but I know that my experience is not the same as others. For me, this has not greatly, significantly impacted my life. It's altered it in some ways. There are some things that I do differently. It's changed some of the things that I do with regard to church, especially in in some of the audio and video and being produced online. And it's changed some of my patterns. Uh, But in in a large part of it, I'm still able to do a lot, many of the things that I was able to do before. And so some are like that. Some, their jobs go on, their jobs continue, uh, their, their patterns of life continue. 
some alterations, some frustrations, but all in all, not too bad. There are others that have been devastated by this. Some have lost jobs. They've been laid off. They're unemployed. There are some who uh, are struggling to find the basic necessities that they need right now because of difficult supply chains and things that are lacking in different regions or areas, especially when we think about around the world and even other places in the world that are affected by this that aren't as well off as America is. So this is affecting people differently. And I, I was thinking about that in this verse when there might be those who are mourning and next to them, sitting in the pew next to them, might be someone who's rejoicing. And that, that makes it hard, doesn't it? Because within the same body of Christ, or even globally within the family of God, there might be some who, in the midst of this coronavirus pandemic, their job, they get a promotion, or they get a job. Whereas someone else, they get laid off and they lose a job. So one person's rejoicing, another person is mourning. That makes it tough, doesn't it? So how do we respond in those situations? Well, it's going to be very difficult for someone who is mourning to rejoice with someone who's rejoicing. It's going to be very difficult for someone who's rejoicing over a good thing to mourn with someone who is mourning. But the gospel calls us to difficult things, doesn't it? The gospel calls us to difficult things. Jesus says, love those who persecute you. Pray for those who curse you. That's a difficult thing. To mourn with those who are mourning when, when you just received a blessing. To rejoice with someone who's rejoicing when you just received devastating news. That takes grace, doesn't it? That takes grace. That takes the gospel power of the spirit working its way out in our hearts through our lives. That takes prayer. God, I can't do this on my own. Help me to to share with, to empathize with, to put myself in the shoes, if you will, of this person who's going through this time. Father, help me in that. One of the things I, I think that hurts us as Christians a lot in our application and our, in our, our trying to live this out in verse number 15 is that oftentimes we just don't notice. Sometimes we're just so focused on our own lives and what's going on and in our own activities and we just got our normal routines and patterns and sometimes we just don't pay attention. We don't pay attention when something good happens to somebody and we just kind of let it go by where we could have had the opportunity to say, congratulations, that is great. Let me rejoice with you in that. Or we don't notice when someone's hurting and we could say to them, I I, I mourn with you. I pray with you. I pray for God's grace for you during this time. So not only do we need the grace to to put ourselves in their their shoes and, and to kind of try to feel what they're going through at this time, but we also need the eyes to see, to notice what's going on around us. The older couple, many generations ago, preacher Charles Simeon said this, as creatures, we have many duties 
to perform towards our Creator. And as members of one universal family, we have duties also towards each other. We all participate in one common lot. And the present state is subject to great varieties of good and evil. And all in their turn experience occasional alternations of joy and sorrow, of elevation and depression. In these successive changes, we naturally look for some to sympathize with us. We expect that they who are partakers of humanity should feel some interest in our affairs. And if we find no one that has a heart in unison with our own, we seem to ourselves as outcasts from the human race. Now the dispositions which we expect to find exercised towards us, we are called to exercise towards others. The joys and sorrows of others should, as it were, by sympathy, be made our own. We should rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. Essentially, he's asking us to, to think, to really put the golden rule into effect in this situation, to do unto others as you would want, as you would wish them to do unto you. So if you're sad, would you like someone to encourage you? Absolutely. So we should have that kind of response when we see someone else who is sad and mourning. Rejoice with those who rejoice. The gospel produces compassion for the family of God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, that this is what the body is for. This is why God made the body. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is mourning, the other parts mourn with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. They rejoice with those who rejoice. This is what the body of Christ is called to do. And so the gospel produces compassion for the family of God. The gospel also creates unity among the family of God. The gospel creates unity among the family of God. In verse 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And I'm looking primarily at the first statement in verse 16, where he says, live in harmony with one another. And there Paul literally says a kind of a basic kind of wooden word for word translation from the Greek would be think the same to one another or toward one another. Think the same. Now, does that mean that we as believers have to agree on everything? No, that's just not going to happen. That's not likely. We do need to agree on the important things, right? We need to agree on the gospel. There's a a certain body of truth around which we fellowship and which binds us together as the body of Christ. There is what the New Testament refers to as the faith. The faith that has been once handed down to the saints. So we need to unite around the faith. And in that, we need to agree. But in other things, in other lesser things, maybe more peripheral things, we don't necessarily have to see always eye to eye on everything. But we still should have a mindset of unity and, and treat one another as if we do agree on everything. You know what I mean by that? It's like 
if someone disagrees with you on something, there, there's, a, there's a, a, an instinct in us that wants to have some kind of animosity toward that person or a little bit of anger or a little bit of frustration or disappointment with that person if that person doesn't agree with us. Whereas if someone agrees with us, we're like, yeah, we share that. I, I, can, I can get with you on that. I think what Paul is asking us to do is even on those times where we disagree, to not have that animosity or frustration or disappointment with that person, but still treat that person as if we're completely eye to eye on everything. We are a part of the family of God. One commentator says this, Paul is calling us to a common mindset. Such a common mindset does not mean that we must all think in just the same way or that we must think exactly the same thing about every issue, but that we should adopt an attitude toward everything that touches our lives that springs from the renewed mind of the new realm to which we belong by God's grace. So it is calling us to have a mind, a mindset toward one another that reflects the gospel and the new creation that we are a part of. Live in harmony with one another. Paul also encourages us in this passage to have humility. And the gospel produces that. The gospel generates humility before the family of God. The last part of verse 16 says, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Pride. Wow. Pride is like the Achilles heel, I think, of the human race. Here's the, here's the seditious thing about pride. Is it can take so many different forms. We, we all see the obvious pride, right? The obvious pride is, hey, look at me. Look how great I am. I'm better than you. That's the obvious pride. But there's also other forms of pride. In fact, one really kind of deceptive form of pride is self-pity. In which we're always down on ourselves and we're always berating ourselves, but we're doing that in the presence of other people expecting what? Now, let me encourage you. Let me tell you how great you are. Let me, let me tell you, no, that's not true. You're, you're this or that. And, and there is, there's a, even the self-pity, what, what's the focus? The focus is still myself, right? One common denominator in all forms of pride is that I'm at the center. Whether it be in self-pity on one end of the extreme or whether it be in self-promotion and boasting on the other side of the spectrum. The common factor in all pride is I'm at the center of my world and everything revolves around me. And that's a mindset that is not compatible with what the gospel is seeking to produce in our hearts. And Paul says, do not be proud, but associate with people of low position. And probably one of the greatest illustrations of this in the Bible is given by James. In James' letter, he gives the example of 
a church, a worship assembly, where you have a poor person come into the assembly and he's dressed in, you know, cheap clothes, kind of maybe tattered clothes. You can obviously tell this person is poor. This person doesn't have much. And so they say, here, come sit, you know, in this really, uh, you know, under this person's footstool, kind of using hyperbole to, to show this really terrible position, this bad seat in the house, the worst visibility, the worst place where you could possibly hear the message. Here, come sit over here in the corner where no one will pay attention to you. But then in comes, you know, the, the mayor of the town or the governor of the state or the president of the United States or the richest man in town. And, and the church says, here, come sit in this really special place that we've reserved for you. And James says, that's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. And that should not be in the family of God. Because within the family of God, we are all one in Christ, aren't we? The cross of Christ levels us. The cross of Christ levels us. Here's why. Because no one has anything to contribute. No one has anything to contribute. And we are all equally in infinite sin debt. So not only do we have nothing to contribute, we're also all equally under the wrath of God. So it doesn't matter if you have $5 billion in your portfolio. Without Christ, you are condemned. It doesn't matter if all you have is two pennies and a long list of credit card debt and you're, you're in bankruptcy. But you say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. Have mercy upon me. Then you're justified and welcomed into the family of God. It doesn't matter if... In the New Testament times, it doesn't matter if you were a slave or a master. You might have a slave who was bound for heaven, but a master who was bound for hell. But you might also have the situation where within the same body of Christ, you have a master and his slave in the same body of Christ and in the family of God, they're brothers, not master and slave. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. And we can carry the extent, we can carry it forward into other things too. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter what your status is in society. It doesn't mean, it doesn't matter if you're a general or a private. We are all one in Christ. The gospel produces humility in us. Because the gospel reminds us that without God's grace, we're nothing anyway. We're nothing. That means the person sitting next to you in the pew is also nothing without the grace of God. We're all nothing. We're all on equal ground because we all equally need the grace of God. It is God's grace that picks us up. It is God's grace that exalts us. 
And so the gospel calls us to humility. This passage is teaching us the gospel produces within us compassion, unity, and humility in God's children. Why? Because we are born again to exemplify the gracious qualities of our Heavenly Father. So all Paul is asking us to do, encouraging us to do in this passage, is to shine forth the qualities of our Heavenly Father. And the greatest example of all of these qualities is Jesus Christ himself. The writer of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who is untouched with our infirmities, right? We have a high priest who has gone through everything that we have gone through yet without sin, meaning that we have a high priest in the Lord Jesus who has mourned with those who mourn. Before the service, somebody mentioned the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Why? Because he was grieving with those who were grieving. Jesus mourned with those who mourned. Jesus rejoiced with those who rejoiced. Jesus experienced all of the hardships and difficulties and trials of this world. And so now he is in heaven interceding for us. And so when we pray in mourning and in weeping, Jesus mourns and weeps with us. And he intercedes before the father for us. When we come in prayer, rejoicing and praising God, Jesus praises and rejoices with us, interceding for us before the throne of God. And we are being changed, transformed by the grace of God to exemplify, to live out the qualities of our Heavenly Father. And so may God produce within our body of Christ here compassion for one another, a unified spirit, and a humility before one another. And I pray that we as a church, the body of Christ, and and not just here at Eastside, but around the world, we who name the name of Christ, right now, I think maybe more than any other time that I know of, at least in my lifetime, Right now, the church needs to show the world what these qualities look like. The world needs, the church needs to show the world what true gospel compassion looks like. The church needs to show the world what unity looks like. The church needs to show the world what humility before one another looks like. We are called to be the light of the world, aren't we? We're called to be the salt of the earth. We're called to be the light of the world. And if those phrases mean anything, it means that we are to seek to make this world a better place by shining forth the Christian qualities like these. Let the world see them in us. And may that be used by God to draw them to the gospel and to Christ. As Paul and the the apostles say in other places in the New Testament, may our living adorn the gospel. 
May our living make the gospel, the good news of Christ, beautiful to the world. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we read these verses and we acknowledge their truth and the necessity of living these things out in our lives. And we also acknowledge our weakness in doing so. Father, we know that even with your strength, your grace, the indwelling spirit, that we will not live these things out perfectly, at least not yet in this age. We long for and we wait for the glorious appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, when we will be perfected. Lord, until then, imperfectly, yet with all of our hearts, we seek to live these qualities out, to be compassionate, humble, to seek unity within the body. Lord, we need your grace. We need your help. And Lord, forgive us and cleanse us when we fail you. We thank you, Lord, so much for the blood of Christ, which has made us worthy to come into your presence and has brought us into the family of God. Now as your children, Lord, help us to live forth the family likeness. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.